Getting into music, Christian music, was never necessary by design. I just started writing lyrics. You know, writers write about what's important to yeah. them. You know, hip-hop writers write about the street and country writers write about pickup trucks. Uh -huh. And I wrote about my faith. Hmm. And soon all the other kids said, well, that's like Christian rock, right? And I didn't really even know what the word meant at the time. But the music became a magnet to draw young people together. And it gave myself and my partner, Dana Key, a chance to, to share the good news with them. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Author, journalist, musician, etc. John J. Thompson is back by the woodpile to talk about some more bands from the 80s that we think need not be forgotten. But first, I should mention that Thompson has recently revived his legendary True Tunes media empire with a new website, truetunes.com, and a podcast where he's interviewing a lot of the artists that we talk about on this one. By all means, if you have an interest in faith-based musicians, the True Tunes podcast and website is the place for you. But for this episode, Thompson and I talk DeGarmo, Key, and the Altar Boys, the latter being up first. Man, the Altar Boys was like the quintessence of youth, rock, faith, punk. Every, it was so awesome. I first saw, I saw them at the first Cornerstone Festival. I was 13, almost 14 years old. They played in the afternoon. I, I don't even, I didn't see the whole show even. I, I, and I didn't know who they were. Um, I didn't know who most of the artists were. And I only went for that one day of the festival. But it was just extremely loud. But you could still hear melody. And, and it was catchy. Every lyric was something you could throw on a t-shirt. Like it was something slogany, mm -hmm. and it cut through the noise, both literally of what they were doing, yeah. and it cut through the noise of the kind of beginning of the MTV era and the, all that stuff. So a song like I'm Into God, mm -hmm. you know, was <laughs> just like, are you kidding me? How, I, why didn't I think of that? That is so, <laughs> so simple. And I made my own I'm Into God t-shirt. Like, I just took a marker and wrote I'm Into God on a t-shirt and that became my Altar Boys t-shirt. And that first indie record that they did, it sounded like kids with a couple guitars and drums and a microphone just recorded. It was so DIY, it was... And I, I was, again, 13, 14 years old. It's not like I really understood, but it sounded accessible. And the thing about the Altar Boys, I had heard at that point, I'm trying to think, I had heard Res Band, I had heard the 77s. And so those two things were kind of doing different things for me. And both were role models in different ways. The Altar Boys was the band that made me go, I could do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I could totally do this. Well, that was the great thing about punk music. Yes. You could express your feelings, your anger or whatever, and only have to know like two or three chords, if that. Right. And that's kind of folk music, really. Exactly. And in fact, in my particular journey, punk punk hadn't really come across my radar too much. Mm -hmm. It had been The Clash. I liked The Clash. I just heard a little bit of their mm -hmm. stuff. And so that's not really 
punk, punk, punk yeah. That's, well, that's like the next step, I guess, getting closer to new wave or, right. or something like that. And it had more sophistication. Sure. Like still, when yeah. you heard when you heard Rock the Casbah, you're not going, I could do this. No. Like, there was <laughs> there was something more sophisticated about that, and it was very appealing. I liked it a lot. But I'm into God. I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. In fact. The first, okay, so there's the first record, and then there's the uh, When You're a Rebel record. That record, I took my, actually, this guitar right here, this is the one my youth pastor gave me. Um, he bought it to, to learn, you know, youth group songs, and then he gave it to me. I was learning chords, and so I would mm -hmm. sing, you know, songs at youth group. And I taught myself Unconditional Love, the Ultra Voice song. a handful of other altar boy songs on that guitar and we used them as sing-along songs at youth group you know and it was that guitar with you know rusty strings and and out of tune and whatever and it was fine i wrote a letter to the altar boys to the address on their album cover and asked them if they had a songbook. <laughs> I said, I said, do you have sheet music? Wow. Because I've been learning your songs. I'm just learning how to play guitar. I've learned how to play this song and this song and this song. But if you had any sheet music. I'd like to learn how to play all of your songs. And I got a letter back from Rick Alba, bass player and songwriter for the Ultra Boys. And uh, I kept that thing on my bedroom wall for years. And I have it somewhere. I just can't find it. Um, but on a piece of notebook paper with the little tassels on the side, he, he hand wrote a letter back to me. And he said, Dear John, um, this is one of the first pieces of fan mail we've ever gotten from outside of Orange County, California. Wow. So we're really excited. So that was neat. Um, they had jumped out that the band had just started to get fans because of cornerstone like they they'd started to spread beyond their local market so that was cool um he said and as far as sheet music he said nobody in the band really reads music <laughs> you know um, which mike later took issue with but um <laughs> he's like i could actually read music but but he said uh, we don't really read music and most of the songs only have three chords uh and he goes and most of them involve a d so hopefully that helps. Have fun figuring it out. You know? and, uh, and it did. Uh, he said, if, if you just, just figure it out, just listen to him and figure it out. So I, I kept that letter. I had it in my guitar case for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there and figured out how to play their songs. And every so often you'd get one with a fourth chord and mm -hmm. it felt like you were going to Africa on a safari. It was like this adventure to get mm -hmm. that fourth chord. But man, the Ultra Boys were just so simple, so direct. I would say that the, just based on what you just said about the, the simple and direct, but also they can make the complex simple. Yeah. The first song I heard by them was You Are Loved. Yeah, I'm trying to get through. God cares about you more than you think. Yeah. To all the hearts that have been broken. To all the dreamers with abandoned dreams. To everybody in need of a friend now. You are loved. You are loved. And I just remember, it, it almost makes you want to weep because oh. we forget that all the time, especially sometimes in Christianity. They nailed it somehow. Yeah. And they did have songs on every record. And in fact, Rick Alba was a writer who would add songs like Hearts Lost in Nowhere and some songs that, that had a sensitivity to them that went deeper than, the, than just the slogan mm -hmm. songs. They always had that. But to me, the Altar Boys and Undercover were kind of the... The heads and tails, they, they went together uh, to represent something that, as a kid, I needed that. 
undercover with all the synthesizers and the that the darker minor key stuff and the ultra boys with just the telecaster and the you are loved and very accessible very easy to understand just enough sophistication and then for me the the the, the record that the first song on when you're a rebel was it the first song the title track when you're a rebel starts with just this scraping feedback and mike screaming out romans 12 2 you know, uh, therefore do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then he tears into that song. And that, directly taking a scripture like that and making it, which is a very punk rock verse in the first place. I mean, it's the essence of punk non-conformity. Non-conformity, yeah. yeah. Uh, but then contextualizing that into, if you're going to rebel, which you're going to do because you're a teenager, rebel for something that has some purpose, right? Mm. And that set me on a path um, that I'm still essentially on. <laughs> so. But that When You're a Rebel record led into the Gut Level Music record, which had even more complexity and texture to it. And then Forever Mercy, it felt like they were embracing some of the, the stuff the alarm was doing. So um, there was a lot more nuance there. So the band was growing. It seemed like there was some folks that wanted them to stay in that one kind of t-shirt lingo kind of space. But like any artist is going to do, they're going to mature. And Mike goes and does a couple solo records. Which are great, by the way. Very good yeah. records. I got a chance to see the band play several times during that era. They had some lineup changes. Our friend Mark Robertson ended up becoming their bass player. In fact, I even promoted a couple of Ultra Boy shows in Chicago. No way to overstate how significant that was. But the, this last year, uh, when they put out the No Substitute record... Well, explain that, the story behind that. Album. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating and fantastic. So in 1991, when the band was essentially kind of on its cycle to do it it's what would become their final record uh, it basically they did a bunch of demos and recorded parts that were very good strong parts but they were uh, not it wasn't a finished record by any stretch and then everything kind of fell apart and the record never went anywhere uh, the band broke up and Mike went and Mike Stan went and started a, a side thing called Clash of Symbols and there was other things that happened in the last couple of years uh, they found those masters, Mike's son did, and, and he and his son, Mike had some surgery that kind of uh, caused him to take some time off. And we, I tell the whole story if you go to the True Tunes website that we wrote the whole article about it. They found a way to get those parts and add some new parts to the old parts and finish that album. Oh. 
so it's got the vocals from 1991, the original vocals, and then they just beefed up the guitar parts and finished the record. But it's it's amazing because it's it sounds like a 1991 record, but with modern production value. Listen to it and the songs are fantastic and you kind of wonder man if this had come out in 1991 what might have happened with the band because it's in a lot of ways they went back to some of the slogany anthemic things of their first their biggest records but then they also added in a couple of the more textural interesting things from their later period he kind of combined those things very strategically uh, knowing what we know about what happened after 91 with grunge and alternative music and kind of exploding, if they had just hung on a little bit longer, you know, you see how The Clash ended up becoming this super celebrated and revered band. And the way Nirvana came out and kind of championed a lot of the early punk stuff mm -hmm. and that stripped down thing became so popular. Mike has still been active for the last, you know, 10 more years uh, doing rockabilly. And so he's got a band called the Alter Billies, and they're not just playing rockabilly versions of Alter Boy songs. It's all new stuff, and it, they're a legit rockabilly band. They're in the rockabilly scene out in California, and they're very respected in that in that scene. So it's not that the Alter Boys are back. Uh, they did one show, I think, and, and maybe they'll do another show or two, but it's not, they're not touring, they're not, there's no other plans. It was just to finish this one record 20, whatever it was, mm -hmm. seven years after uh, they started it. <laughs> So I was eight years old, and my grandma bought me DeGarmoyne Keys straight on their second album on cassette as a baptism gift. <laughs> I, I got baptized in a leech-filled lake somewhere outside of Peoria, Illinois. And my mom had told my grandmother that I was really getting into rock music. I'd found a college radio station out of Peoria and I was discovering some really interesting music at college radio. Mm -hmm. You know, I, The ones I remember for sure were the Talking Heads. Uh, that was probably Psycho Killer. I just was obsessed with that song. And then The Clash and a few others. What I later would call alternative music, but it was just college radio playing interesting music at the late in the late 70s and I was 8, 9 years old. But I also loved... Kansas and the Doors and Boston and mm -hmm. you know FM rock kind of stuff and so my mom was getting worried because I was listening to this rock music and she had a bunch of Jesus music records that were real hippie acoustic you know stuff and some of them were okay and and we had a couple some kids music that we listened to but I was getting a little bit over that you mm -hmm. know so she told grandma and grandma goes into some Christian bookstore and with a list of bands that I liked 
and talks to some guy and says, okay, my grandson likes, you know, the talking heads yeah. and the sex pistols and what do you got? And the guy gives her this DeGarmoin key. We've, I think we've talked about this before, but there was <laughs> those, I, okay. those lists yeah. they used to have. At the, well, this was before that. Like, yeah. So this was late 70s. They, they didn't have that chart yet. Um, Explain to folks what the chart was. In case the chart was the recommended if you like chart that in the 80s the record labels uh, would or the distributors would send to all the Christian bookstores. And you could find them in the music department of just about every Christian bookstore. And on one column it would say broken down by genre and it would list all of the mainstream secular bands you could think of and then on another column it would be the christian version of that mm-hmm. oh gosh i hated those things in fact when i had true tunes going the distributors begged me to put those charts up and i refused to do it i, I just I absolutely refused in fact i remember one time one of the sales reps came in when i was gone and dropped one off with one of the staff kids mm-hmm. and they didn't know about my ban on this thing and they put it up and i got in and i was like who put this up like we have a we, we're not allowed to put we don't you know. and i took it and i put it in the bathroom and it was a joke with a marker and let people like deface it and <laughs> add all their stuff so it was you know but you can see their point of view, like why they thought that was a good marketing tool. Oh, it was a great marketing tool if the whole purpose of Christian music is to create a lame alternative to real music. I had no dog in this fight, but I can see like if I like the Beatles, like I can't think of a Christian equivalent, but I would think Phil like... Phil Keggy was on there for the Oh, uh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But I mean, I would like <laughs> other Beatles-esque groups like like XTC, for example. You know, that's right. of course a secular group, but you know, I you know, kind of like what's, what's going on there. So I can see, again, from a marketing point of view, yeah. why they want to... And it, but you never would see that in the mainstream outside of a conversation with the human being to say, well, yeah. I like Beatlesque mel- melodies and uh-huh. smart lyrics. And someone go, have you heard XTC? Uh-huh. But in the Christian market, for one thing, most of these stores didn't have a single human being in there that knew anything about this music. And that's why the distributors wanted these charts up, because the chart would function to fill in the ignorance gap. And so there would be a chart up there because Joe Schmo or Sally Schmo doesn't know any of that Christian music stuff. And so at least what a kid like me would go in there and say, I want rock, alternative music, and nobody in this Bible bookstore knows anything about it, I can look at that chart and right. find something. The moral problem I had it was, as an artist, as a fan of this stuff, these people weren't trying to be a Christian version of right. anything. They were trying that to make interesting music. Yeah. And so what the distributors were doing was trying to reduce it all down to that. Right. I understand exactly why they did it. I hated it. And right. I, I refused to partake in it. Ironically, a big part of my journey into this whole thing started because of that exact phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. My grandma, who knows nothing about rock music, goes to a Christian bookstore and says my grandson likes and lists bands that probably they never heard of. Uh-huh. And they said, oh, we've got the perfect thing. <laughs> and, and gave her two tapes. One was the Pat Terry group, this folky uh, guy from Georgia. Uh-huh. Now, Pat Terry ended up making some amazing records in the 80s with Mark Hurd. But this was not one of those records. This was <laughs> Heaven Ain't All There Is. It was it was John Van Denver kind of right. music, right? And soon we leave the show. The bigger the blessing we receive, the closer we get to unlocking the kingdom's door. Even now I go back and I listen to it and I can appreciate Pat as a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. And but as a nine year old kid listening to television and talking heads and that was not, you know. So what they, why they gave her that tape, I have no, no idea. But then the DeGarmo and Key Straight On tape was the second one. Probably the truth is, in their entire store, that was the only rock 
tape they had. <laughs> so they gave her that one and then just something else. Right. Because she wanted to buy two tapes. Yeah. That's my theory. Uh -huh. The truth is, DeGarmo and Key's second album, Straight On, is one of the most amazing rock gospel albums ever made in the history of whatever we call Christian music. Mm -hmm. In fact, I just listened through the whole album again a couple weeks ago on a drive to Georgia with my son, and it stands up now as one of the most interesting rock albums mm -hmm. outside of just Christian music. Now, it has nothing to do with talking heads or alternative stuff. It's a southern rock, boogie, uh, blues gospel record. Mm -hmm. Recorded in Memphis, produced by the band and Joe Hardy, who ended up going on to be hugely famous for working with mostly ZZ Top. That was kind of what, you know, buttered his bread for the 80s and 90s. But he also worked with a lot of other the replacements and all kinds of other greats. So Joe Hardy who just died last year, was the producer on this thing. They recorded it at Ardent Studios in Memphis. Sonically, it's an amazing record. Stylistically, the way they blend prog rock elements with southern rock elements, the only band I can think of that kind of does that is like the Dregs to some extent, but then bringing in some gospel, Muscle Shoals kind of things. <laughs> And then you've got Dana Key's vocals, for the most part. Eddie sings one or two songs. He sings my favorite song on the record, Living on the Edge of Dying. Dana's vocals are so smooth and clear. You add that in there with songwriting that you just, I mean, who in the world, how do they get off writing songs this good at that age? You know, it's their second album. Now, the fact is, Eddie DeGarmo and Dana Key had been signed to London Records, a mainstream label, before either of them were Christians, when they were just teenagers. That, that was back in the late 60s, so 10 years earlier. So they'd already been musicians for a long time. Mm -hmm. They even though they're young and this is their second album, they they really had a lot of experience before this record came about. They tried doing their own version of what they thought they kind of had invented. They'd never heard of Christian rock. They were just doing rock music and singing about what mattered to them, that they're kind of how they saw life as, through this filter of faith. London Records had no idea what to do with this. They, they talked to them about changing what they were singing about. They didn't really want to do that. And so they dropped them. Eddie talks about this. He wrote a book last year called Rebel for God that I recommend people read. It's, and I helped him write it. Right. I, I didn't help him write it, but I helped him kind of edit it and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, it's fascinating to hear him tell that story. So, so they had tried to do this in the mainstream and got shut down. Then they basically formed a band with guys who were just the best players in Memphis. They weren't the best Christians that they could find to kind of pick up an instrument, which is how most Christian bands were. Sure. They were just great players. They went out and toured, and they, they played at a level that Christian bands just weren't doing. And the first record 
this time through has got a lot more of a folky, bluesier, chill style. Then the second record, it's just straight on. It's just unreal. Um, the third record, also very good. This Ain't Hollywood. Uh -huh. Dark and getting a little bit back to the first record in terms of the, the bluesy stuff. To me, it lost a little bit of that prog rock piece that, the, that straight on had. They taught you how to act real cool. They showed you how to Then they do a live record, which is a fantastic, it's a fantastic double live record. Um, so with DeGarmo and Key, you've got essentially three bands, <laughs> you know, although the lineup is the same. You've got the early version in the 70s, which they exist kind of in a vacuum. They're not really influenced by the Jesus music thing because they kind of formed on their own. Later, they kind of get associated with that and they get pulled into that scene uh, into the, in the 80s. They made some strategic choices in the 80s to shift their style to, to get songs played on Christian radio. Mm -hmm. The first record that they did was called, in that era was called Mission of Mercy. they did was they very strategically wrote songs that would work at Christian radio and took a lot of the guitar out and made it more synthesizer based. Even a lot of the B3 was gone and it was more uh, keyboard oriented. When Mission of Mercy came out, I was super excited and I got my youth leader to take me to the Christian bookstore and buy it. And when I looked at it, I was worried because the front cover... <laughs> was like just Eddie and Dana wearing sweaters, like no band, uh -huh. just the two of them. And it wasn't even, I think it wasn't even called the DeGarmo and Key Band anymore. It was just called DeGarmo and Key. And they're wearing sweaters, and it looked like a Lionel Richie record. Uh -huh. like, and I was like, uh, this, I'm a little worried about this. When I started playing it, I actually started crying. Like, I got emotional. I was so upset about, about how it sounded. Like... It was not the same band, and I didn't like it at all. Mm -hmm. um, I, it was just heartbreaking. Like, what have they done? Now, the thing is, I was irrationally attached to this band because I had a, I felt like this band saved my life. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole long story there that I won't get into, but I talk about it in my book. And, you know, the, Straight On was like a lifeline to me. So I was investing a little too much into a record. Right. <laughs> I said I was 11 years old or whatever. It worked in that that record got them on Christian radio. It got them hits, which then opened the door to bigger shows. And um, so Ready or Not was one of the, which is a cover, um, but Ready or Not was one of those songs. You're not living like you should be living. You better give all that you've got. Because when you hear the trumpet sound, 
All the Losers Win was on that record, Let the Whole World Sing. That was a big song off that. So they were played on Christian radio then, which then opened the door for them to get, to basically have a career because they were, they were going to have to get other jobs if they didn't sure. do that. They were not making ends meet the old way. So they did that and then followed that up in 1984 with a record called Communication. And Communication still had a lot of that Christian radio stuff on it, but it had a song on it called 666 that actually got banned on MTV for supposedly for having uh, too much violence because at one point this Antichrist figure gets a barrel of fire knocked over and he goes up in flames, and they said that was too violent. Really? It was crazy. This is it. And when I asked him to explain it, he just smiled and told me, six, six, But that was just enough scandal or enough buzz to actually give them some edge. The song is very synth-driven, new wavy kind of song. It fits right in with 1984. Like, it, it sounded like what was on the radio. It wasn't rock, mm -hmm. but it was pop edge, you know, so it, it was almost like the cars or something mm -hmm. like that. So it was fine. So communication had enough moments of pop culture relevance that I was like, okay, you know, I went and saw them on tour and I, live, they were still rocking and mm -hmm. they still played a couple songs from that second record. And so I stayed a fan, but the records, I was still like, I don't know. And then they did a record called Commander Sozo and the Charge of the Light Brigade. Yeah, what was that all about? Uh, it, it had that song Competition on it, and I didn't understand that record. Um, I mean, you worked for the guy eventually, so did he ever explain it to you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, he talks about it in the book. If okay. you go look at the book, he, he goes through album by album and describes... Okay what the choices they made, uh -huh. what was happening with the tour, yeah, everything. So it's really interesting to go back and, and Eddie was a very strategic, is a very strategic minded person. Every choice they made was calculated and for the most part worked. Dana was very much the, he was the preacher, you know, so for him everything was about the platform growing so they would reach more people. Mm -hmm. Both of them were artists. Both of them had musical sensibilities and, and those blended together. But they made a really interesting team that way mm -hmm. because Eddie was more of the tactical guy and the business guy and Dana was more of the uh, preacher guy. Right. And, and they would sometimes be at odds with each right. other over some of that. But, but that tension was probably what made it work. Right. Eddie had like more of a personality. Like he was more... Outgoing, if I remember it correctly, and where Dana was real laid back. Yeah, my I, I mean, that Eddie was a maniac on stage, yeah. like with the crazy oh, all costumes, the, yeah, and the organ that would spin around right. in circles and stuff. Um, <laughs> in fact, his organ is here at Trebek. It used to sit right there, uh -huh. and we moved it over to another building. But he donated the organ to the school here. Then, Streetlight is the record that you mentioned that has every moment on it. Okay, and, yeah, and that that was when they kicked in for me, and, right. and it definitely mirrored what was on the radio like you say it was yeah. a big kind of anthem rock and again as we talked about the altar boys there were melodies that you could never get rid of out of your head was some depth to it too so it wasn't all slogans yeah and there was streetlight was a record that they did in partnership i believe with 
a mainstream label as well, and the, the goal there was to try and get that song and some stuff going on both sides, and so that was a very early attempt at that. Mm -hmm. And you can hear it. Production-wise, they were bringing the guitars back in a little bit more, and some great songs on there as well. And the thing about the, the sloganism, you know, they got, they got uh, ripped by some critics in, you know, in the Christian media for uh, having these slogan-y kind of songs. Especially later on, like, was it Boycott Hell and Boycott stuff like that? God, Good, Devil, Bad. And here's the thing, like, Altar Boys are similar with I'm Into God or, right. you know, that kind of... The truth is, fans love that. Like, and, and if you think about rock and roll music in general, how many songs have been huge songs because they could fit on a bumper sticker? Mm -hmm. And so I think that Eddie, rock solid, you know, the, the idea of I'm going to rock uh, this, my faith is going to be rocks. Like those, when you get that thing dithered down to something that could fit on a t-shirt mm -hmm. and it's almost like the quintessence of what rock can do when it comes to who the market is, which is youth and what the format does, which is repeat a chorus three times mm -hmm. and a bridge. Like, so I, I'm a little bit less uh, critical of that than I was at the time. Cause I was into the Talking Heads and the 77s and artists that weren't doing that as much. But what was burning down the house? Yeah. It was a slogan. Like there was a chorus that all of the rest of the weirdness of that song went to burning down the house. Right. Mom, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, so what he was, what Eddie and Dana were doing uh, was essentially um, synopsizing certain youth group themes in a way that in that genre made sense. The, the thing was, I was growing up, mm -hmm. and so I kind of was looking for deeper textural stuff, and they were seeing their job as predominantly still serving kids, and so some of us were growing beyond it, but, right. but as they did that, their audience just grew and grew and grew. So that wasn't a case where the record company was saying, "Hey, you need to dumb it down." Or you oh gosh, to... no! Okay, nobody's so ever told Eddie what to do. What to do? <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, Eddie started his own label, uh -huh. and so Forefront Records was the label for mm -hmm. Gremlin Key. And that's why another reason I suggest people read that book is that there are plenty of situations in Christian music where there's A and R people telling artists what to do. Um, when it comes to Gremlin Key, Eddie becomes the label, and later the publisher. Eddie understood what the market wanted more than what the critics wanted. And so, you know, he tells a story about God, good, devil, bad, mm -hmm. you know, and I teased him about that song. Like, cause to me, that was when I was a little bit older and I was like rolling my eyes a little bit. Uh -huh. And he tells a story about being somewhere in an Island somewhere and seeing a guy with a tattoo of the devil on one arm and Jesus on the other or whatever. And the guy, you know, that he's like, What's the deal here? And he's like, oh, I've just got to remind myself every day, God good, devil bad. And, yeah. and Eddie's like, that's true. Like, uh -huh. you know, I'm going to turn that into a song. And it worked. Mm -hmm. People loved that. It doesn't mean that everybody loves it. And he's not trying to appeal to everybody. But mm -hmm. the people that he was appealing to, it, they loved it. The self-titled record, D&K, mm -hmm. to me was the peak of that second, well, so if you think about the first era of D&K being the 70s and the second era being the 80s, where they kind of made some compromises to get on the radio, but then they very quickly go more rock, mm -hmm. you know, by streetlight. Then with the with the D&K record, they're more in the realm of like 
ZZ Top and Van Halen. They're really pushing the, the hooky rock thing and still always putting some ballads on every record so that they could fill that slot. But they were a rock band mm-hmm. for real. And that DNK record, I just listened to that again as well. And it is really well produced for the time that it's in. It sits much more in the pocket of where mainstream music was than almost any other CCM records did. It has rock solid on it, you know, which is a fist in the air, anthemic kind of youth group song. also has brother against brother and some songs that are a little bit more thought-provoking and and interesting that to me was the peak they did the rock solid live record after that then you see the kind of late period stuff the pledge record which was huge for them but that's kind of when they really are a youth group market band did they produce materials to kind of go with the record yeah yeah yeah. that's kind of what i that's my memory of it like these songs would go with the uh, the Sunday school lessons. Right, right. right. I was personally less following what they were doing at that point. But I remember going to that show because I was in the business and it was like they were still really good at connecting with kids. Mm-hmm. And I was 20 or 19 or something like that. And I was looking around and I, I remember even going, okay, this... This isn't hitting me the same way, but I was looking around at kids that were 13, 14, 15, and it was hitting them. And I was going, well, when I was 13 or 14, they were hitting me. It, as the 90s kind of evolved, they, they, took, they added in more grungy kind of alternative elements into their stuff. Um, and they, they did a record called Two Extremes that was de- or Heated Up was one that they did and, and Two Extremes. Those both had like a lot more noisy mm-hmm. elements to it. I cannot smile Don't blame me if I do not try I didn't even pay attention to those records as much at the time, but I went back and listened to them and, and they do have some uh, typically, you know, good songs on him. I just wasn't paying attention at that point, you know. But then Eddie had started Forefront and had signed um, DC Talk and, you know, all this other stuff that he was doing. So eventually they just wound the band down and mm-hmm. he was doing other stuff. But to me, DeGarmo and Key was like the... Early on, they kind of represented what it could be if artists who were just best in class they were just ridiculously good musicians just played amazing music and it was about faith or whatever but they just did it like i feel like that second album is good enough to be respected by rolling stone and mm-hmm. anybody else the problem is it wasn't <laughs> yeah. and so i've always felt like the and key is kind of the test case or exemplar of why christian music evolved as a separate thing and so then they make the compromises that were necessary to be made and they end up being very very good at what they did in that space and they become the the best example of christian rock like if you were thinking of what what is what defines christian rock back in the day people would have probably said petra but to garwin key were better than petra when it comes to the musicianship 
the show, they were the same band. They didn't keep changing lead singers, and they didn't jump styles around as much. They were like, to me, DeGarmo and Key was the best example mm-hmm. of Christian rock. They could have been the best example of something else. Right. If I was the one that ran the zoo. But they definitely were the best example of Christian rock. And then Petra and Whiteheart were second and third for different reasons. You want to hear my one Eddie DeGarmo story? Sure. I was parking cars at Green Hills Grill in Green Hills, part of Nashville. I pull up the car. I don't know what. I'm, someone just threw me some keys or the or the ticket, you know. And it's Eddie DeGarmo. When I get out of the car, I'm like, oh hey. I didn't, I didn't pretend like I knew him or anything like that. I just you know. Uh, but you did know. You did know it was him. Oh yeah. Okay. That hair, you know. Back and he had a keytar in his hand. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, like crazy pirate pants. Yeah. No, I mean, it was clearly him, yeah. and he started patting his pockets. He's like, uh, oh, hang on, and he's like, I don't have any cash on me. I'm sorry. I said, no, don't worry about it, really. He said, no, 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 I need to find you something. He starts looking through his car, tearing it apart, like the, under the seat and everything. He can't find anything. And then he, he gets in his trunk, and he finally, in a briefcase or something, finds like a couple of bucks, you know. Yeah, I thought that's pretty cool, because there's been a lot of super famous and super rich people that... Every time they came, they said, hey, I'll catch you later, I'll catch you later, I'll get you the next time. And they never do, of course. You know, right. we just know that they either don't carry cash or they're just tightwads, you know. But So it really impressed me that he would tear apart his entire car to find $2 for me. So well, thanks, Eddie, if you hear this. <laughs> so. One of my favorite stories in my life was that after my grandma bought me that tape, mm-hmm. I didn't listen to it at first because she made the mistake of telling me it was Christian music. <laughs> you know, and so I assumed it would sound like Sandy Patty or something. Right. And then... You know, through a series of circumstances, it ended up being one of the only things I owned. Out of desperation and boredom, I put it in and listened to it, and it just wrecked me. And so it became super important to me. Years later, I was about 12, and I lived in Chicago at this point. And I heard that DeGarmo and Key were going to be doing autograph signings at the mall, not far from my grandparents' house. By not far, I believe it was about five or six miles away. I tried to get everybody in my family to drive me to the mall, and nobody was available on a Saturday to take me over because they were playing somewhere in Chicago, I guess. And so I walked to the mall the five or six miles so I could get them to sign my tape. Wow. And when I got there, the line to get autographs was so long that I knew I would never get up to the front. They weren't going to be there long enough. So instead of waiting in the line, I looked around. I'm like, what door are they going to come in? And I figured out which door I thought the odds were they would come in. And I went to that door, and sure enough, right as I walk up, this white van pulls up, and these guys start getting out with leather jackets and sunglasses on and, and long hair. And I, I got all excited, and I was like, are you DeGarmo and Key? And I'm pretty sure it was Eddie. He goes, yeah, who are you? And I said, I'm John. I'm, I'm here to walk you to your signing, which was totally like <laughs> really self-appointed job. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's right over this way. Here, can you sign my tape while we go? And they said, sure. So they all four, all four of the guys signed my tape as we're walking. And, I, and they're asking me about myself. And I was talking a mile a minute. And I was yeah. so excited to meet them. I just about wet my pants. <laughs> and I walked them right up to the front, showed them. And the, the, I remember somebody there going, who are you? <laughs> I was like, I'm just, just act like you belong, you know. Yeah. And so I still have that cassette cover. And when I got home, I added my name under theirs. Like, so it's all of their names, and then my name at the bottom. So in 2007, 
I started working at EMI at the time, and Eddie is my boss. And he had, you know, been a couple of months of us talking back and forth about me going to work there and stuff. And um, so my, day one of working there, I brought that cassette cover in. And so he, you know, after I was settled in my office, he came by and he's like, so everything good? And I said, yeah, yeah, everything's great. I said, yeah, I got to show you something. And I told him that story and showed him that tape. You know, I said, you know, when I was 12 years old, it's this whole thing. And he just looked at it and he was like, that is wild. But just the, the full circle kind of nature right. of that, you know, and then to be able to help him with his book and just still be friends and stuff, yeah. it's just crazy. That's but, awesome, yeah. You know, it's, there are people that I, I've been blessed to know all kinds of people in this industry. And but can I say, you've also worked for it. I mean, no. yes, you've been blessed. And maybe you've been given sure. some opportunities. But I mean, I haven't seen anybody else work as hard as you about it. And I mean, based on what I know, I mean, I don't mean to blow smoke up your rim, but... Uh, I'm just proving a point that that yeah. you put yourself in the right place. Oh yeah, right. yeah. exactly. Yeah. I go to the door yes. and I wait for the van to unload. Exactly. Literally, yeah. Yes, yes. That's. I'm, I would I, never I, have done that. Right. I would, just, that's why I would I have cried that. behind the fern. You know. <laughs> and, that's why, and that's probably why I yeah. tell that story. It's yeah. like because later on I realize what it reveals about my nature is that even though I was ostensibly quote unquote helping them, I was it was about. You know, right. me getting an opportunity. Sure. I bumped into Eddie years later in L.A. I was working on some Grammy stuff, and he was in the same meetings, and I recognized him. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. And uh, he had heard about my book, Raised by Wolves. And in that book, I actually kind of made a couple of sideways comments about DeGarmo and Key in the 80s. You know, I, I jokingly said, at some point in the 80s, Eddie DeGarmo lost his B3, but found a keytar. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm throwing a little bit of shade. Yeah. And uh, so he had heard about that, but I don't think had read the book. And, I, and so we were having breakfast at that meeting, and, I, and he said, Can I, could, would you send me a copy of your book? And I said, yeah. I was a little nervous, but uh -huh. I said, yeah, I will. But I said, when I come to Nashville next, could we get lunch? And you tell me what you think about it. Uh -huh. And so I mailed him the book, and I... The next time I was coming to Nashville, we got lunch. He'd read it, and he was telling me like what he thought. He thought that was funny. He thought, he, and he said, you know, the truth is, I did lose that B three. He literally lost an organ. He had it in a storage bin and lost it for like over a decade or whatever, and had just recently found it in a storage <laughs> bin. And that's the same organ that he gifted to Trevecca here. But uh, he, there was a couple things that he he started to tell me other stories and it was and then over the 10 almost 10 years i worked with them i heard all these stories and i kept saying eddie you've got to write this stuff down uh -huh. and then when i wrote the jesus bread and chocolate book and he read that he came in and was like you know I, i'm gonna write a book when he retired he's like would you help me uh -huh. kind of organize my thoughts on this stuff uh -huh. so that was just a, an enormous honor to be trusted with that kind of thing he wrote his first manuscript handwritten pen and paper just stacks of, of yellow legal pads, just 100,000 plus words. And so to, to have the honor of helping him sort of organize his thoughts and, and create a, a plan for how to tell that story was just huge. Eddie is one of those guys that gives me a lot of hope because He's both the creative guy and a strategic guy. And a lot of times my heroes have been the super creative people and I go, I could never do that. You know, I'm not that kind of person. Eddie's been both effective on a business level and as an artist. And so whenever you're that type of person, you're going to make choices that some people are going to disagree with. You know, 
uh, I really hope that he does more uh, recording. You know, he's in retirement now. He's been working on. We work. didn't mention he did some solo records yep. too. There were fact, actually quite a bit more got a southern, really. him on the lunchbox? Yes, that's an Eddie DeGarmo lunchbox. Wow. And then, uh, Do kids actually use it to put their sandwiches in? They could. And of course, we lost Dana. Yeah, what were the oh, circumstances around that? Uh, he had a, a heart attack. Dana was a pastor for many, many years in Memphis, you know, so he was doing what he was called to do. Um, again, talk about choosing your heroes wisely. You know, they were... I, and I was also um, thrilled <laughs> that I talked them into getting together to play at Cornerstone. Oh, I can't remember which year that was. Maybe 2010 or 2009 or something like that. I'd have to look it up. But they hadn't played together in a long time, and they got together and they played, like, uh, one show to warm up, I think, in Memphis, and then they played at Cornerstone, and then they played some biker, like, Christian biker rally thing. After the Cornerstone gig, which was really great and really special, I'll never forget that at the end of the night, um, they were getting on the bus to leave, which Eddie drove, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, which is perfect. Dana was getting on the bus, and he came back down, and, and he hollered out my name, and, and he looked at me, and he's like, thanks. Like, thanks for making this happen. Mm, cool. And uh, um, that meant a lot, you know, that he said that, because I think that he was hard to convince. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, but he his son was there kind of guitar teching for him, and I got to talk to his son quite a bit that night. and. They were fantastic, and it was the last time I got to see him, so. Get up, get up, go on and go tell them Jesus is all that you need. Again, be sure to go to truetunes.com to learn more about the bands we talked about today and a ton more. And you might want to check out In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 191, where radio personality Bill Lyric tells some good stories about his days at both Christian and secular radio, some involving Rich Mullins, Joe Walsh, Tim McGraw, and others. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.